Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 30. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with John Darko. John is a biology teacher and technology integration specialist at Seneca East High School in Attica, Ohio. John's main teaching interests include problem-based learning and using computer models to teach the complex topics of diversity, interdependence, adaptive systems, uh, set points, and emergence. John is well known for the collection of computational models for biology and ecology. The collection includes models on topics such as lactase enzyme simulation, gene linkage and recombination, and evolution of populations, genetic drift, natural selection, and mutations. In 2016, John received both the Heidelberg University Distinguished Teacher Award and the NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher Award for the state of Ohio. You can follow John on Twitter at John Darko. Welcome, John. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Good. It's great to have you talk. Uh, you know, on the show. Um, I have a funny story for you, which I didn't tell you off air. Uh, I was talking to a fellow teacher at a PD earlier this summer. And we were talking about going to NABT and how cool it was. And uh, and she turned to me and she's like, yeah, the first time I was there, I was in my first session. I turned and I was like, there's John Darko. <laughs> John Darko, John Darko. I was like, this is the the, the world of bio teacher celebrities, uh, small. <laughs> but, that is hilarious. But I, I, totally, I totally know the feeling. Like I remember being at NABT and looking up and saying, oh my God, there's like so-and-so. Like you, you hear about these people or you see them on Twitter or you use their simulations in, in your case, and somebody says that. So uh, I was like, oh, yeah, definitely have to have John on by the end of the summer because, uh, you know, he's That's one of those real funny. celebrities I haven't had on yet. So, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, like AP Biology has, I started when they started the new curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I teach at a small rural, rural school uh, just down the street from Chris Monsoor yep. uh, in Attica, Ohio. And we started AP Biology with the new framework. What was that? 2013, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I never even knew there were, I mean, I knew there were other biology teachers, but <laughs> I never knew of other biology teachers, I, I would say, except for Paul Anderson. Uh, <laughs> and so this, I would you know, encourage anyone, if you could get your administrators to get on board for AP Biology, it really is opened up uh, a whole nationwide, worldwide connection of biology teachers hearing different perspectives and so forth. So it's been nothing but positive for me just from the, the framework of talking with teachers I, I never even knew were out there, especially like at my, at my school, uh, there are three science teachers, but we're all very busy and mm -hmm. none of our conferences are at the same time. So we, we rarely get to talk outside of our classroom. So uh, if you're in that situation, you know, get on Facebook, get on Twitter, listen <laughs> to Aaron Matthews. So. <laughs> yeah. it's And I'm in a school where we have 20 science teachers, 
but we have the same problem. So, you know, I think uh, <laughs> networking in your building, it should seem a lot easier, but um, uh, it's sometimes it's it's better and it's easier to have conversations with people who aren't like necessarily tied into the, the politics of your building. Like yeah. the thing that you have in common with these people all over the country is the working with kids and working with the subject area. And it's nice in some ways to be outside of that little, little political bubble of, you know, the the d- disruption that happened to the schedule last Tuesday or, you know, it's more the conversation you engage in is just about the kids. You know, that's the, that's the good part. Yeah. So and you get to you get to hear expert opinions regularly. Yeah. Which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. All right. So uh, we had this great <laughs> I should have started recording like 10 minutes ago when we first started talking. Uh, but uh, I'll get into the the formal interview now, which is, uh, you know, how did you become a science teacher? What what led you into the classroom? Let's see. So uh, my path is convoluted, like a lot of people's. Mm-hmm. I let's see, I went to Ohio State and I was interested in helping people, uh, kind of making the world a better place, I, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I ended up pursuing a degree in sociology. So I was interested in sociology, especially uh, like collective movements, collective behavior, what influences a, a group to start acting in certain ways. And then uh, I took a bunch of philosophy courses also uh, in tandem with that. And like environmental science was uh, really interesting to me. And then I got a degree and I thought maybe uh, I, I got married at that time also. And we were looking at the Peace Corps. Uh, so we were looking at the Peace Corps. We also uh, were applying for national park jobs and so forth. And to earn money in the process, <laughs> I substitute in, in Ohio, you don't need to have a teaching degree to substitute. So I thought, well, it was it was May and uh, Lorraine City Schools, where I was living at the time, uh, took me as a substitute. And I stepped in, never been in a classroom before, uh, except when I was young. And it was a fourth and fifth grade classroom. There were no lesson plans. Wow. It was a bilingual classroom. <laughs> uh, and the kids pretended like they couldn't speak any English at all. Uh, and I just had a great time. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed uh, substitute teaching. And from that point, I thought, well, uh, maybe I should be a teacher. That sounds like I could make the world a better place. Uh, and so I just started substitute teaching, not sure, started applying to different programs, looking at different programs. And I thought originally I was going to do fourth and fourth through ninth grade mm-hmm. uh, as a degree. And then I started reading science books. Uh, one of the books that really got me interested was Lynn Margulis, mm-hmm. Microcosmos. As a substitute, you can read all the time. Uh, maybe <laughs> you're not supposed to, but <laughs> uh, I'm looking and, forward on my bookshelf. I think I can I, I can see it across the way. Uh, that oh, that no, book on my was, yeah. What a what an amazing concept. This uh, theory of endosymbiosis and this this idea that we can know this much about the world we live in just kind of opened my eyes. I was not interested in science in high school. Uh, None of my teachers 
probably want to see me ever again. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, but so I got interested in science, went uh, and got a science degree, uh, science teaching degree, and I've been in love with science ever since. Wow. So that was kind of my path. All right. So uh, the way I'm going to have to make some connections here. So you, <laughs> you go to college, you, you were not enamored in science. You, you get into sociology, you, the, you get into elementary to middle education. And the thing you're most known for are creating computational models. And so I, I'm missing a piece into <laughs> how does John, uh, how does John become the, like the guru of computational modeling in AP biology. That's ridiculous. I have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so what led, what led to these computational models? Like how did, what, what sparked you to start making these, the, these simulations? Um, so when I did start teaching, I think in the, the first chapter of a textbook, especially on, I think it was the Miller Levine textbook, they would talk about, you know, how to, how to, scientists know things mm -hmm. uh and they they said observations and experiments and modeling mm -hmm. and so i thought oh you know not talking to any other biology teachers anywhere i thought well i got it. how do i model something uh and from that point modeling i just assumed was computer modeling thinking about weather and uh, climate change and things like that. Uh, so I started with Excel modeling and didn't really like that. I moved to NetLogo, mm -hmm. which are you familiar with NetLogo? Very little bit, but yeah, broadly. Yeah. Now they have a version that runs in the cloud. So it's a little better for okay. teachers to use. I didn't like the download for students to edit. It was a little too much for me. Uh, and I thought for sure too much for the students. I then got a scholarship and I took a class through Bowling Green on systems biology. And we started modeling with uh, Simulink and MATLAB, which okay. MATLAB is just down the street from you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they are. I think it's Natick, right? Um, yeah, there's, uh, and there's, there's a couple of facilities around, uh, that do MATLAB around here. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I got a grant to get MATLAB for my students and we started modeling with MATLAB and Simulink and I did that for two years and it was a little too, too much. Um, and then I, it just kind of grew from there trying other various platforms out until I found the one I like now, which is uh, Stella mm -hmm. out of New Haven, Connecticut, IC Systems. That's the main one I use. However, I use uh, several others that I have my students model with, but for myself, that's what I use. So you had, when you started doing this, were you building the model and then having your kids run the simulations like the ones that are on your website, or were you having kids build models was, from the ground up? Yeah, I was way too ambitious at first, uh, but in a good way. They were building, so the idea was they tested something experimentally and then tried to build a model to see if they could uh, see how that behavior could lead, you know, lead to predictive behavior based on the model. So one group of kids did 
different pH levels on Wisconsin fast plants mm -hmm. and tested growth. And then they tried to create a computer model for growth by manipulating the different amounts of pH. So were they using the data that they generated from their experiments to create the model? Correct. Cool. Yes, that was the idea. So you were you were like coding, having the kids do some coding and simulating. I mean, all of these programs, well, I don't know all these programs, but several of these programs involve at least a, a, a basic coding premise to them. Uh, a little bit. So Simulink, which runs on top of MATLAB, mm -hmm. is object based kind of like which I'm, like, I'm much more of like a, yeah. a visual person is so that, i don't know if you know scratch not, is that like scratch it is similar i mean scratch is i guess uh they have like the tiles that click together yeah it's a it's object based kind of like that basically you'll you'll take like a variable like uh number of plants mm -hmm. and it'll be kind of like concept mapping uh, have you concept mapped? Yes. So it's like that, except when you link two objects together, mm -hmm. uh, you link them together with math. So they would figure out what, what kind of operations would link these two variables together, which for me, it's, it's much, it's much more intuitive and easier for the students to understand. And you can do sophisticated mathematical operations that I have no idea how they work. Uh, but intuitively, I understand them. So I could not tell you at all what a differential equation is, but through modeling in some of these programs, I intuitively understand what it is. And, and the students can intuitively understand integrals and derivatives without actually knowing how to solve a derivative or an integral. So that's what I like about computer modeling for sure is you can, you can use your, the kids are doing these mathematical operations that they have no idea how they work, but then they don't have to because it's much more simple through uh, a computational model. So I'm going to I'm going to give a sort of simple this is the simple schematic of how I put this together in my head. Um, uh -huh. uh, we go and we do a lab and during this lab I end up seeing some sort of relationship that occurs in the data. Maybe I graph that data and I get a visual of what this looks like. And so now right. I, now I've got this graph and I go, "All right, so this graph if I was going to look for a mathematical formula, I'd look over here in this like menu of different graphs and one of these graphs represents the mathematical formula that produces this graph. Does that sound right? Uh, I, I would know. Okay, so, good. So, <laughs> good. So for example, I'm, I'm glad it's not me, that simple. <laughs> uh, it's not. Um, you could, for example, uh, and this was in my systems biology course, you could run a model and just run a sine graph in the computational model to mm -hmm. produce an oscillating behavior, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Up and down. But it would be much more interesting if you had two variables that were connected and the oscillating behavior emerged out of their kind of simple interactions. So, so one causes one to multiply and one causes the other like to subtract or divide, right? So as one increases, the other decreases. So you get that negative feedback loop. 
Okay. So, so okay. that would be much more, to me, it's much more interesting to be able to have uh, the oscillating behavior emerge through the interactions versus just picking a graph that is running a sine graph. Okay. All right. So, uh, and you said this was, you know, you were doing this and you were doing it with your students and it was maybe overly ambitious early on. Um, so what levels were you doing? Was this, you said, you, you know, when we were talking, you've been doing the AP for a few years. Uh, you've been doing modeling longer than that. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Uh, 2007 is when I started modeling. Mm -hmm. So I was just, this was just with regular biology kids. Yeah. So uh, just regular rural biology kids and they were able to, you know, do marvelous things with it. It's a, it's a, a neat opportunity. Yeah. But you had to open up a lot of time, I would imagine, um, for them to, to start to at least build some proficiency on their uh, early on. And then once they've got the basics down, then it's a powerful tool that they can use in multiple different operations. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so you've gone through this process. Do you still, would it, is it fair to say that you still have killed kids building models today in your environmental science and your AP Definitely. Bio classes? Yep. Yes. Uh, is it Mark Peterson? Mm -hmm. uh, recommended Loopy. Yeah. And that, that's a fun intro to computer modeling. Yeah. Uh, so I I found that last year and I thought, oh, this is this is a, a great introduction. Even elementary kids could create computer models with interesting feedback loops and so forth with something like Loopy. I like using, I still like using, I use Google Sheets instead of Excel now just because I try to pick anything I can that runs in the cloud mm -hmm. versus something you have to download. So uh, I still like doing like logistic growth models and things like that with uh, Google Sheets. But now I, there, there's a couple different programs. Uh, Insight Maker is one that runs in the cloud that I like. And then there's a Stella one that runs in the cloud too, that I like my kids. We can throw those up in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been taking my, taking my notes as you, as you're going, uh, uh, just so that I have them a little I'll, bit more fresh. I'll post a few for you. So okay, it makes excellent. it easier. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I mean this this idea of modeling, um, and you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, that I, I went to like all the PD this summer. Like that was just, I felt like <laughs> I said I'm only gonna I go, saw that. I'm only gonna go to two <laughs> things this summer. I really said that. I started saying that. I started saying that in like February. I'm like only two things. I'm only gonna do two things. I went to way more than two. Um, but modeling was this like recurring theme that went through the whole summer, um, and it's not an accident. I mean, I uh, I feel like I've really struggled. Uh, with modeling. Uh, one of the things that came out uh, when I was at Paul Anderson's little two-day workshop, uh, he said, you know, he said they threw modeling out there and everyone suddenly thought it was arts and crafts time. They had to go out and buy like Play-Doh and pipe cleaners and da-da-da-da-da. And I like felt embarrassed because like, yeah, I've got some kids of Play-Doh and pipe cleaners and, you know, and they're, it's useful sometimes for kids to build a model of something, but mm -hmm. that's not necessarily what modeling is. It's not arts and crafts time. You know, it's, it's showing the picture that the kids have in their heads of what they're thinking, you know, explaining yeah. that relationship that's there. Uh, but all of the workshops I went to uh, was there. And then one of the funny moments, uh, which leads into my next question, was when I was at that workshop and a bunch of us are starting to post. Um, I, one of the things that came to my mind was, uh, and if you've ever been to Paul's uh, workshops, he has this thing where he likes to take pictures of showers. 
Um, okay. And shower, like as a, an idea of elements of designs. And he travels all over the world. So and so my thought was, and the common phrase that's thrown out there is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I'm sure you've heard this. And I'll get back to that. And it popped into my head that his mantra should be, you know, like, you know, all showers are wrong, but some of them are <laughs> useful because he has this this picture in his head of, you know, like, why does the shower design this way? And it's all about his idea of modeling and design. And it's it's a really it's a really low level of like, you don't need to know any science. Everyone's got experience with showers. And I thought it was a really elegant way of talking about the concept of design and design being all around us. Uh, but anyway, there was a little back and forth that happened at the workshop. And one of the people in the workshop posted, you know, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And you chimed in. <laughs> and so I want to give you an opportunity to tell me and critique the phrase, all models are wrong, but some are useful. What are your thoughts on this phrase? Nice. Yeah, I definitely trolled that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh comes from George E. Box. Yeah. Um, he said it a couple times in various ways through some papers. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, a little bit has to do with semantics. So uh, he's talking about statistical models. And so like uh, you have a linear, linear regression line and or looking at the mean of data and the mean of data isn't actually telling you uh, what's actually there. So it's not what's there. Standard deviation is telling you kind of a, a spread of the data, but not actually what the data actually is. Mm -hmm. So there was as a, for a review paper, I would recommend, and we can put this in the show notes too, uh, Caleb Bryce from University of California, Santa Cruz, wrote an article in American Biology Teacher in January, and he has a great review of what models are. Uh, and it's a, it's a really nice article. He goes through, uh, he talks mainly about scientific models versus teaching models. And what I'm, what I was trolling was uh, this idea that science, I don't think that all science models are wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think generally, I don't think that's a very contentious is issue. So uh, a science model, in my opinion, is like a hypothesis or even a theory could be a science model. It's the model that we have of how nature really works. So I think saying that all models are wrong, uh, I think it's being taking it a little too far. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I worry for the most part, I worry that when students hear this, which I, I've used that term several times, mm -hmm. uh, but by itself, I think it can lead to some kind of uh, epistemological relativism where just if every, if all science models are wrong, uh, then, you know, there is no, we're not learning anything about nature. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? I do. Uh, so I, I think we, we need to be very careful when we are saying all models are wrong, especially when we're referring to science models. So I think everyone listening to your show would agree that Darwin's model of evolution generally is not wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's extremely useful. So instead of wrong, I would, I would, I would substitute that phrase for a limited. Yeah. 
I think there's... the word the word wrong is your issue. The word wrong yes. is it's it's uh it's this entirely too negative component. It doesn't it it undersells all of the the information that went into building the model up to that point. Right. And we can talk about like like a science model like um Watson and Crick's concrete model of DNA, mm-hmm. right? Well, of course we don't think that the metal that they compose the nucleotides out of is actually what DNA is made of. We know it's not. It was supposed already supposed to be an abstraction mm-hmm. of this chemical. So is DNA made out of metal? Uh, you know, that's it's they weren't thinking that it was going to be made out of metal. They were abstracting it already. So saying that their model is wrong, I think, is uh, just taking it a little too far. Uh, I would I would I think my issue keeps on going when I, I see kind of contemporary issues of the view of science. I think nutrition science uh, is where people get this idea of science is always wrong. So I see this a lot, right? So uh, people say, well, butter was good for you. Now it's bad for you. Then it's good for you. So it goes back and forth with this ebb ebb and flow. And this phrase of all models are wrong kind of in some sense reinforces that claim where, where I would argue that I'll take the strong position that I think science is really the only way we know anything about the natural world we live in. So all the other methods of knowing things about the world really aren't backed up by any kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. So I would like my students to kind of move forward and get this idea that yes, models are limited, but they are our best tools and really one of our only tools to understand the world that we live in and how we can make better decisions about our futures. Yeah. I think the, I, I, for me, I would say that the word, word wrong, I might not change the word limited or I might change the word limited to, um, you know, incomplete, you know, all models are incomplete, yeah. but some are useful. Um, because to me, the idea that science changes is, you know, that science changes upon new evidence, that it's the collection of all the best evidence that we have, and that we are building the most complete model we can at this moment. But by its very nature, science feels that more information is going to come along, and that as it comes along, the model will become more complete. Never complete. Right. Never complete. Yeah. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to get fully there. Um, but I guess when when you put that objection in, I was I was starting to think. All right. Well, what would be the word? Well, at first, I went through. All right. So what's wrong with this? Incomplete is great. And and to me, I was thinking the word incomplete fit in because I like the thing I like about all models are wrong is that um, I sometimes feel with students, particularly younger students the ones that I think of when I think of my honors bio students and they come in and I I say, all right, here's the model of DNA. And they're like, all right, I'm going to take a snapshot of that in my head and I'm going to memorize that. And then when the test comes, all I got to do is spit back that model, which 
like, no, <laughs> no, I, that's not what I want you to do. I, what I want you to do is I want you to take the information and I want you to, to shape it in your head and come up with all of the information that we have. And what does this model mean? I want you to tell me back from this information. How does this, I don't want them learning my model. I want them sharing the model, building the model together, asking questions about the model, not viewing the model as this complete thing to memorize and spit back at a test, but something that they need to grapple with. Um, because I think that's really what science is, that science is not, there's no, you don't take a vocabulary quiz and say, yep, I knew all the science. Um, or if you do, you don't know science at all. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, it's when you start to work in a lab and you start to ask yourself questions and challenge your assumptions that you start to really f find the holes in the model and the questions that need to be asked and the science that needs to be explored. Yeah. Like this series of successive approximations. Yeah. So we keep on getting closer and closer, but we're, you know, it's, it goes on for infinity. Uh, yeah. And then, and something might, you know, and often this happens with technology, you know, like a new technology comes along and now allows us to, you know, I think of visual, but like we get to see something new. Like we were never able to, to peer into a world this small or peer into the workings of something. And now we suddenly can do this. And now we have this flood of new data. Now we got to say, all right, now with this flood of new data, what what does it say about our model? What parts hold up? What parts don't? How can we make our model more complete? And I love teaching how models have changed over time. Like yeah. the, the story of DNA is just what a great story of you can go through from Griffith and Avery onto Watson and Crick and then into Jacques Minaud. You know that 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 sequence of building this understanding. I read this summer the the gene by uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee. I'm probably yes. butchering his name. Uh, yeah, I have not read that yet. I'm, oh, I'm intimidated. What a great I, story. I, I'm totally intimidated by the size of that book. <laughs> it, is, it, it took me a lot. I fell asleep a lot reading that book. <laughs> but what a fantastic story of uh, just the, the history of the gene. Yeah, I'm really psyched to go through some of that. Yeah, and I think that one of the the questions that I have when I look at this idea of modeling is, you know, this has been again part of my journey learning about models that I have. How much of when we go about teaching, um, I get really excited about talk, talking about that models and how they discover, but a lot of times I feel like when I'm I'm telling, I'm going to use that word, when I'm telling my students about this story, I am telling my students about this story, and they already have this textbook picture of what exists today. And it's, I don't know if I always do a very good job of explaining how the model developed, you know, what was the picture at that time, and how did they take the information? And it's really hard. It's like time traveling, you know, put yourself back. And here it is. It's, you know, the 1940s. And what do we know about? All right. Now we're in the yeah. 1950s. What do we know about? And that's, you know, that's a big leap for anyone to go through. Um, but that's the piece I, I like grapple the, with. I like the picture of the homunculus in the sperm <laughs> from, uh, I think it was probably like Aristotle or one of the, the Greeks maybe had this, like, they thought a little person was inside the, the head of a sperm, yeah. which... Actually, I don't think I must be wrong because how would they have seen sperm without a microscope? No, I think it was. So, I, I think you're right that it does come from those times because I think it was, I think it was philosophical. I mean, it was this philosophical seed model, you know that. 
Yeah. That, that it wasn't a scientific based model. <laughs> well, maybe it was just in the semen, so they didn't know yeah. her, what it looked like. But. Well, and also, I, I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, uh, Bloodwork. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, it's by, uh, Holly Tucker. And the only reason I know that is I can see it on my bookshelf across the way from me sitting right now. Uh, but it's all about, uh, the work of, uh, scientists, um, basically in the 17 and 1800s, uh, figuring out about circulation and how, you know, how blood circulates. And they used to think that, um, the heart was like a furnace and what it did is it, it burned blood. Nice. And and so like this now well but if you think about that now it's like well why did why was bloodletting proposed? What do you have with a fever? You got too much fuel. We got to burn the blood out. We got to use the leeches to get the blood out. There's too much fuel in there. Let the steam out. Yeah, it was so like but I always wonder like what was wrong with these people in the 1800s that they thought like bloodletting or leeches would work? It's because they had a model of circulation of the heart as a furnace. And it burns yeah, so, blood. <laughs> yeah, so you could start with that. And then if you're teaching like the circulatory system, start with that and then say, well, so what kind of evidence would you have? They, you could ask, ask them, how does blood circulate? And they would talk about capillaries and things like that. Yeah. And then say, well, what evidence could you collect to support that hypothesis? And, yeah. you know, just cut off a blood vessel and watch it start building up and yeah, it's it's a very fascinating component. And this was sort of that dawn of time where, you know, the natural philosophers and scientists and the salons and that blend that they really had between philosophy and science, where there was a lot of, um, you know, it was eminence based science, not evidence based science. It was like when the when the really well respected doctor or well respected person stood up and told you something their eminence was what made the science valid, not the evidence that was based. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a, a fascinating way of teaching where you can talk about the concept of, of models. And maybe that's the thing is you have to show a model, like one that we now clearly know is wrong. And then maybe ask some questions about that. Um, I know there's a lot of work with the, the, um, the phenomena, um, NGSS phenomena that's out there and that's really cool and I always wonder about that but I'm now I'm like now I'm starting to ponder these ideas of like well what if I was to show one of these like ridiculously wrong models uh, from the yeah. past um, and then and then use that same you know you know question formulation technique with the model All right, you see this model and then ask some questions about it and how could we challenge this model it might be interesting to do that because I think for me, when I look at models and the appealing aspect of the idea that all models are wrong is it's it's so in your face to the student about, you know, the pictures in your textbook are pictures in your textbook. They're models. They're not they're not a holy truth. They are not right. they're not from the tome of science and will never change. This is the best picture we have now. And it's based off of something. It's based off of evidence. And by saying that it's wrong, it challenges the idea of like the rightness of the textbook, which I, which I feel is a like a really big issue with me. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's important for students to understand that science is evolves with data. Yeah. And good experiments. Yeah. So I, I I like the I like the idea of of talking about things like nutrition science and how and I mean we could come up with m many different ways of how people challenge science 
using straw man arguments or or they they prey upon the uncertainty of science um as a flaw with science not as an essential part of <laughs> what science is like the uncertainty of science is is a good thing and it's an it's the nature of science that we we, we are always tentative in our explanations but some people abuse that um using straw man arguments and various other things to undermine um you know recommendations based off of our best models um yeah yeah like uh the eclipse uh <laughs> for so that was yesterday as we're taping this mm -hmm. um we had models that developed uh and within seconds or probably milliseconds you were able to go online figure out where you were geographically and see when the total eclipse or partial eclipse for your area would be yeah so I'm not going to talk about the eclipse until we get to pics. So okay. <laughs> I'm going to hold off on that. But I, yeah, it, I'm glad you brought up that, that we're recording this the day after the eclipse because it will make my, because I think when this comes out, people will like the eclipse. That was like so two weeks ago. Because that was two weeks ago. <laughs> it, when this comes out, it will have been two weeks ago. Um, but but I do have an interesting uh, forward-looking eclipse thing in my pick of the week to, to cool. like that. All right. So uh, you had mentioned to me, you start class tomorrow. Do you have students tomorrow? Or is that teacher day? students tomorrow. Yeah, we did our in-service and open house and so forth last week. Okay, so, so you are kids right in front of you tomorrow. So I could ask, you know, what are you looking forward to in your classroom, you know, in the years to come? But we could start with, like, tomorrow. What are you excited about for tomorrow and, and then, you know, in the years to come? Yeah, what am I excited about? Uh, I, have, I have a lot of kind of bothering things for me, what I'm excited about is to really talk, I, I've been kind of progressing here over the years, is this practice of science and, and you know, what is peer review? How does the, the philosophy of science work and so forth? Really trying to get at this issue that uh, science is not unchanging, but science is the best method we have for understanding the world. So, looking at different strategies to try to teach misconceptions about science and so forth. There's a, a couple ideas. I, um, I really like science in the classroom. Uh, I think it's .com through mm -hmm. Science Magazine. Okay. Yeah. And they, they have uh, a resource where you can click on, I'm sure uh, some of your guests have been contributors to that. I know Bob Kuhn has um, but you can click on like the claim, uh, the evidence and, and so forth. And I, I love that CER model, which, which I use. One thing I would like to do is start sharing just abstracts to students and having them just take the abstract and pick out where's the claim, where's the evidence, where's the reasoning, uh, and seeing if they can pick those different parts out instead of, I feel like a lot of times when I tell them I want them to have reasoning and I talk about what reasoning is and I think the more examples they see of reasoning will be better because that is certainly the weakest part for my students. Is. So how then are they making uh, a reasoned assumption based off of the this evidence that they have? Yeah, you're not alone. Um, <laughs> that is a, the reasoning is the hard part. Uh, I think for everybody. Um, 
But yeah, you brought up uh, when you were talking, it brought up this this uh, conversation I'd had with um, one of the one of the scientists that I work with um, during the year. And I actually did a fellowship in his lab a couple of years ago. And, and I remember having I don't know, we've had so many conversations, so I don't know what the context of this particular conversation was. But I remember him being really pointed about the fact that, you know, one of the critical things that that students that he sees and these are like grad students is that they're not critical of journals. Like they they get this thing and they read the abstract and then they will pair it back. Oh, this person showed in this journal article this. And he will say, I don't think they did. That, you know, they said they did this and they collected this evidence, but their reasoning you know, I don't I don't think I thought they were overselling their reasoning or I think that they were missing this piece of evidence. And I think that if you talk to PhDs, like people who do research, that's a skill they have. Um, and they said he but he said that part of the and this is before I was even using CER that he was we were having this conversation that that critiquing reasoning is another thing or, you know, asking the question, what would you need to see in order to believe that this claim, you know, what's the evidence that you would need to see to support this claim? And is the is the linear piece there? Um, I think that would be obviously a next step. I think what, what you're describing is a much more reasonable first step. Yeah. But it made me think of that that conversation and how would that go? Like, could I we get to that point where the kids would go, but well, made him, you know, maybe we can find some articles that are examples that aren't great claim evidence reasons or maybe an overstatement and say Yeah, I think yeah. The the conversation coming out of the uh, psychological sciences reproducibility mm-hmm. uh, crisis, I think that is uh, a great opportunity. I found a, a couple articles on that that I'll share with students of the the process of science, and then you know what is uh, statistical significance, and how are they choosing these? Is are they able to sh- show? Uh, you know, causation from these different uh, experiments. So one thing, and I I like to use my models for teaching the practice of science. So kind of helps, I I see it as like a scaffolding mechanism for me to go from their designing experiments, their own through wet labs, and then using it kind of computationally. So, you know, I see the process of science of they have a claim and then they generate the evidence and get uh, some kind of correlation. Mm-hmm. So how do you go from there to causation? How do you, so you have to get rid of your confounded variables and the, in the gene, uh, they talked about in the gene and also Serengeti rules mm-hmm. uh, by Sean Carroll. Yeah. Carol uh, talked about Jacob Minode and is lactose the thing that was turning the gene on? Uh, so was lactose the thing that turned that transcription of the operon on? And so kind of looking at how do you get rid of these confounding variables? How do you figure out actually what causes uh, the gene to turn on or what causes different things to happen. And it's all about, you know, getting, trying to reduce as many confounding variables as you can 
but ultimately uh, you could get closer to the truth, but it's again, a series of successive approximations. Yeah. So yeah. I'm excited about that. All right. That's cool. Are you, um, are you a syllabus on day one kind of guy or are you going to do some sort of like, you know, magic tricks, I, data? I mean, I will, uh, no, I do do magic tricks. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I, I have a couple of card tricks and cheap decks that I got that I have some pretty good card tricks and I like to destroy the idea of magic with my students regularly, uh, that it's just a trick deck. There's yeah. no such thing as magic, <laughs> uh, which is cruel and entertaining all at the same time. But uh, on day one, I usually do for some of my, like my regular biology class, I will certainly, uh, we're gonna look at different living organisms I have in my class and try to determine what are the characteristics of life. Uh, in AP biology, I might steal Bob Kuhn's idea with the Wisconsin fast plants, light, dark. I really, uh, yeah. I like that idea. It's, it's simple. And I was planning on doing something with germination anyway. So this would be a nice, simple way to say, you know, I'll ask the question, uh, what factors determined germination and see if they can come up with a experimental method. It's clean and easy. Uh, something that they could really set the experiment up right in that first class period. We're 50 minute class period. So set up right that class period. And uh, I thought about doing fruit flies. That's what I've done in the, in the past, but I think I might do the switch this year. Yeah, we're, we usually do fruit fly behavior actually was going through. I think we're actually going to try C. elegans behavior this year because we use fruit flies a lot during the year. Um, and possibly too much. Uh, <laughs> so I think we're going to do C. elegans, but I haven't decided what I'm going to do. I have the, I have a, a, a big bag of radish seeds over on the side. Um, and I'm still, you know, this will come out the day before I go back to school. So we're still two weeks out. Um, I've had some thoughts about it. Um, I definitely am going to do a version. I think I'm going to do a version of like what is alive with my, with my intro bio kids. But I'm leaning towards doing something like, you know, almost like a little black boxy model. Like, here are three petri dishes of seeds. You know, what do you what do you see about them? Maybe doing like generating questions, like, you know, and doing one in light and doing one in dark and doing one in some other condition. You know, adding something to the third group. Um, to see if I can just sort of the question generation, like not tell them what these are, like a little bit of a blend between the phenomena and observation. Yeah, I have, you know, on on to inquiry, kind of dealing with what this idea that we're having is I have trouble with students finding a good reason to vary something versus just you know, they're like, well, let's add gasoline to it and see what happens. <laughs> it's like, what, you know, what is the, what confounding variables are you trying to get rid of? What, what are you trying to control for or test biologically by adding gasoline to yeah. your mixture? Uh, I think getting over that hump is uh, challenging for a lot of my students that you're, you're not just experimenting is not just playing with chemicals and organisms. It's trying to find something out about the world we live in. Yeah. And I think that with the, 
one of the things that I, I find, and we do we do a model, we do an experiment with our honors bio kids, and that's one of one of my colleagues. It, it, this it's we have this conversation every year, so it it gets better. It's been getting a little bit better, but it is the same conversation every year. We ask the kids to design experiments, but they so don't know anything at all that literally what they'll do is like we'll provide them with a couple of different organisms, and they'll be like, oh, we want to investigate road salt impact on this you know ecosystem so we're going to use fast plants as our model organism and road salt and they come in to set their experiment up and they've thought nothing about salt so like they don't bring salt in and then i'm like all right well what kind of salt are you going to use and they're like uh so they haven't thought about like road salt versus table salt they haven't thought about concentrations at all they haven't they don't know how to keep plants alive so they can they'll dry all the plants out like Forget keeping, they don't know how to like set up a control that will live, let alone doing all these things. So this has been, the, the, again, I tell all the time, the kids teach you what you need to do. And the kids have been teaching me over the last couple of years, particularly a student who has no experience on designing experiments, how you have to teach them about all of these things. And you have to close the inquiry box quite a bit the first yeah. time through inquiry and then explain why you've closed the inquiry box as much as you have so that they have a safety net of doing this, but have it open enough so that they will screw up. Um, <laughs> because I, I sometimes will go in and I'll, I will go into that group and I'll say, all right, so you guys have to come up with this. It would be nice if you had like, you know, uh, a source. And there are times I say to kids, yep, you can't set the experiment up today. You just, you, you don't know enough to set the experiment up today. It's all right. We've built in enough time, but I need you to come back and you need to have this figured out and this figured out and this figured out. What's going to be the same? What's going to be different? You got to come back. And other times I will help close it and say, well, how about this? Or how about this? And, you know, we can do factors of, you can do doubles or you can do serial dilution and it's a good opera teaching moment to talk about them and I'll give them yeah. some resources and, but it'll depend on how much they come in. But um, I, I still grapple with the how much do you give them? How much do you say, nope, here are your holes. Fill these holes in and come back. And how do you build that time in? But he, every year he comes back to me. He's like, yeah, we had the presentations. He had, you know, eight groups in the class. And, you know, six of them were, you know, killing all their plants with, you know, too much fertilizer or too much salt or, you know, crazy pHs. They killed their controls because they don't know how to like, have plants live or they killed all their brine shrimp or they killed all their duckweed or, you know. And it's not uncommon for like half my groups to do that. And I build in enough time that when they do that, I say, all right, well, let's set it up again. What'd you learn from this? How do you set it up the second time? And I give them opportunity to collect some data by making that mistake and then coming back and doing it a second time. So um, the first year, though, it would be like, you know, seven dead organisms and then one really well-designed experiment. And now four or five years in, it's, you know, half of the groups who really struggle and have zero data. Yeah, and I think you building in the, the opportunity for feedback uh, and giving them time to then go back home, reflect on your feedback and then approaching it again is, is really something I think myself I underdo. Uh, and I think probably generally teachers do it just because of time constraints, but it's really a key part is having them, giving them that time to fail uh, and then not just having them fail, but then give feedback on their missed opportunities and what they can do to improve it and giving them actually opportunities to try to improve their experiment. Yeah, I would love it if I could get to the point where the failure was actually, um, they could get feedback from their peers on that. I think that's one of those pieces of the, 
and again, you just, you hit the word time. Like, how do you do this with time? How do you do this with time? Um, I would love it if there was time for peer review. And we've actually started building peer review in with our claim evidence reasoning uh, labs. And this is something uh, we stole, I stole from other teachers in the building and, and they have worked through. And they, it's really nice that the kids write their CERs and there we actually have a peer review day where they read somebody else's and they give feedback before it's collected in. Um, and it's, I, it's, I really like the fact that we've been doing that, but I would love there to be more of that component in the classroom. I, it, I guess this is why I am, you know, I'm a little maybe late to the party, but this is why I've been doing a lot of the work to making a little bit more of a flipped blended model to my class mm -hmm. is to open that time up uh, to provide those opportunities. Um, there's really two reasons. One, as, as I mentioned in my last show, as I want to start being able to use the data from formative assessments to, to strengthen things, you know, and in the past I would say, yep, I did this formative technique and... <laughs> <laughs> then, oh, good. Everyone gets it. Good. Let's just move on. And I would probably set it up in a way that would skew the data so that I wouldn't really collect the really hard stuff. But as I've done, a, <laughs> as I've been doing a better job at like pinpointing misconceptions, I've come to the conclusion that I really need to start opening time up to address these. And I felt last year really hamstrung by that, that I wasn't doing a great job at necessarily pinpointing those pieces in advance and really, you know, being able to dive down and have the kids work with the really hard concepts um, if they didn't get it the first time. Um, and be yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, this is, you got to figure this out. Um, uh, and that really, that's been something that's been nagging at me. But the other piece is, is that having the kids talk to each other, you know, there's a lot of things we have them do at home. There's only, for me, I have 47 minutes a day where I have a group of people together and I have the strength and the power of that group. And yeah. that's that 47 minutes where it's like, that's the time where it's where the community and we're there, there. Am I using that time well, or am I squandering that time by doing things that they could do elsewhere? Um, and that's, and I think that feedback piece and the communication piece is something that's special that can happen only when you have a group of people together. Yeah. And just having you as, you know, the, the expert around to also give feedback is, is a great opportunity for students one uh, strategy for giving peer review that I really like is the silent gallery walk mm -hmm. where kids will have like full right claim evidence reasoning out on a whiteboard or something like that. Uh, and then they'll take posted notes and give uh, criticisms and leave their little criticisms behind on each, each group member's work. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I, I did a lot of gallery walks this summer in my 8 million PDs that I did. Um, <laughs> I did a lot of it. But as I would say that I think, you know, this is the perfect example of I, the first couple of times I did gallery walks. I don't know that I, I think I, I probably rolled my eyes and was like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and I, I don't know that all of my first couple ones were great. I think that one or two of them, they were sort of contrived. Uh, but it, it's like anything else. The more experience you have with it, the more you can start to picture it in your own view. And I, I've got, got one or two... Um, I actually was doing a gallery walk thing last year. I didn't realize I was doing it, but I was doing it with chalk markers. Um, I was gallery walking last year. Uh, and it was, it was, I had this light bulb moment this summer where I was like, oh, wait, I do this. Um, I do this gallery walk thing. I don't, I never call it a gallery walk. Um, but I was doing a gallery walk where I was having kids answer questions and then having other groups come around and leave feedback on the answers to the question. Like that's a gallery walk. We were doing it. Um, 
so now I have this model of how I've actually used this in my classroom and how we can how we can build this into some of those other pieces. So <laughs> I will I will post a link to how to do a gallery walk for people who are like they went off on jargon early I, we, for all the people we didn't lose when we started talking about um, various computer models. Um, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it was, I was in a, one of the things, workshops that I haven't talked much about is I was at MIT and one of the things that we did um, was they were doing compute, using computational thinking to analyze data. And uh, we actually did, um, we, they taught us some basic Python. Um, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I looked around the room and uh, I got to tell you, like all the other adults in the room with one or two exceptions, one of the other two, a couple of the other people were like, oh, this is cool. Let's try this. I would say that like 90% of the adults in the room were like, I'm too old. This is too hard. I can't do that. And I was like, you are not the 16 year olds. You are like, like stop being a whiny teenager and saying it's too hard and like just fail like try it and explore and then make mistakes um but it was really it, it it was really interesting to to watch people sort of gloss over at a hard concept that was there in fairness to the adults in the room they showed us like this really really simple thing on python and then the next programs they showed us in python were analyzing mris and it was like Cool. <laughs> it, it was like it was like literally teaching somebody how to count in French and then giving them like a temps de gado and say, "All right, come back with a book report in a couple of days." It was like it, it was it was really a it was a deep dive um, pretty fast. But I thought it was really cool. But I I realized not everyone enjoyed that. So so when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? I <laughs> uh, I let's see. I like to bike ride all when I'm off with you, I will be going on a bike ride before the last day of school. So mm -hmm. I like uh, cycling. I ride, I would say every every Wednesday is a group of us get together and we ride and then we drink beer afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, and I, I do run. I used to run a lot more than I do now. I've been having some foot issues. So uh, <clears throat> I like running, camping, uh, and then I like snow skiing a lot too, downhill skiing. I also cross-country ski too, but I like, uh, if I can, now I live in the area where downhill skiing is very poor, uh, but I, I used to when I lived in more geographically interesting areas, uh, downhill ski quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I've ran a, a few marathons, so... Well, marathon length distances. I've actually, I've only ran two road marathons, uh, but then I did a, I did a 50 K oh, miserably <laughs> and uh, that was horrible. And then another trail race was like 27 miles. Uh, it, that was, that was a fun race. I, I did have some cramping issues and I thought I was going to die, but, uh, I do like, I, I liked running, uh, I'm kind of my my wife still runs a lot, so she ran the Boston Marathon a couple couple years ago. Oh. Uh, the the year right after the bombing. Yeah. Uh, so we we go up there uh, occasionally. Yeah, I've I've never been I've never run Boston, um, but yeah I I don't have foot issues. I just have like old and slow issues now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, yeah I. I, I cycle a little bit. Um, it was funny. I was telling you earlier, I, we, we just upgraded our treadmill 
um, after buying a dud of a treadmill before. And I, I moved around. So I took, I had my bike on the, on the trainer and I also have an old, um, uh, an old spin bike that I had used for cross training in the winter. And it's, I, it's a tank of a, but it's a really good spin bike. Um, but I didn't have it set up. I had it sort of like broken down into the pieces to fit it into a small space that I had to move. And I took it out and I put it back together and I was like, Hmm, maybe I need to start doing some more cross training and <laughs> it's a, it's not the same. I mean, road biking and spinning are not the same thing at all. Uh, but it definitely is a good workout. Yeah. I have attention trouble with, uh, stationary bikes or treadmills. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> if I can't see the outside, I, I really have, uh, I really struggle with exercising. Yeah, for me, I I mean, I prefer I have the same way. I love to get outside, but we're about to get into the season where, um, honestly, if I didn't have a treadmill, I wouldn't get in runs. Uh, you know, the it's not so bad in September, October. Once we get into November, December, and there's no light, and you know, you're leaving, you're leaving for work, and it's dark out, and you're getting home, and it's dark out, and you know, where I live. Um, I remember last, you know, last winter when I had a, where a treadmill broke down, um, I was driving into the center of our town and parking at one end of the town and then running the sidewalks uh, from one end of the town to the other. And I don't live in a big town, uh, but I was in and then like looping around some like safe sidewalk neighborhoods uh -huh. in order to just get in like a five mile in the middle of the week. Because if I couldn't get it in, you know, during the daylight, that would be the only way I could do it. And so with two runners in the household and two small kids who are not so small oh, anymore, yeah. it's like with the treadmill is it's a, it's a bit of a necessary evil. Um, <laughs> but that's why, you know, we have podcasts, we have audiobooks. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love running with podcasts or so, bike ride. You know, you probably shouldn't, but oh, yeah. I, I bike ride sometimes with podcasts too. I'll put just one earbud in yeah. and uh, disappear into the country. Yeah, I'm a scaredy cat on my bike, so uh, like I'm just like I'm I'm white knuckled on a flat road, so like I'm um, I'm just not a I am not a confident cyclist, um, so I I can't imagine listening to anything on a bike, which is probably why I don't like biking as much as I like running, because I'll trail run through the hardest like like you know you know uphill downhill rocky rudy wet mud two headphones in you know everyone's a while stop to look around for the bears or whatever but um uh, <laughs> but yeah i i i'm very confident on my two feet but not on two wheels <laughs> yeah i've been trail running before listening and then all of a sudden i would scare like a family of raccoons or <laughs> Like there would be a deer near me and scare me. Yeah, so. I've, I've had that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, before we get to Pix of the Week, I can now do this part. Uh, <laughs> you have any questions for me? Uh, let's see. So I really like, um, I found a, a good resource for getting Arabidopsis seeds. And I started growing them this summer and I've, I've had some luck, uh, but I know you grow Arabidopsis. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what kind of method you use with your students to grow your Arabidopsis. So one of the things that I have found that is um, Arabidopsis are a little finicky. And that what I found with Arabidopsis and not all of the Arabidopsis seeds are the same on this. But um, when you read up on them, uh, you will find that vernalization um, doing like sort of a cold snap is a really important step for the success of certain strains of Arabidopsis. So what I have found is that having students set the seeds up 
um, on on I usually use par- I usually use petri dishes with filter paper. Um, okay. And then I usually and have them wrapped in parafilm. I usually do multiple layers of uh, filter paper so that you've got like three or four filter papers so that there's a little bit more moisture in there. You want the filter paper wet, but you don't want the seeds um, saturated saturated in there. Um, I usually have the kids do like a line of seeds. Um, and then I usually put like, I, I love 10 just because it makes stats easier. Uh, <laughs> I'll have them put 10 seeds along the line, sort of even uh, equidistance. And then I will do like a... I want to say it's like four days I'd have to go in, but usually it's like three or four days uh, of vernalization where I take them and I put them in the fridge. And then I take them out and our germination rates, generally speaking, are much better. Now, I will also tell you, I have kids do independent projects and some groups do not do this at all. And they have complete success (laughs) with that and they get great germination. Um, so like that's a weird thing but on the filter paper in petri dishes i have found that that's a really good method now those are good for germination studies they're not great if you want to actually grow the plants to full size so if you want to grow them to full size um i i generally just plant them in um in dirt similar to fast plants yeah Um, i haven't come up with a great method i've i have a method written down of using uh, like a, a clear agar, like a plain agar. And um, it's uh, it's like, there's a type of salt. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. There's a type of salt. That's a salt nutrient that there is like the preferred salt nutrient mix for them, which I have a, I have some of that for Arabidopsis. What I've done. And I know I, I don't want to jump on your, um, on your pick of the week too much, but no, it's okay. I have several. So that yeah, work. I've got, uh, there is uh, through Ohio state has that Ohio, uh, Arabidopsis, um, kits that they have out. And what I've done is I've ordered their kits. Um, uh, and I've used those usually to introduce Arabidopsis. Um, and so, uh, they have a really nice, um, uh, gibberellic acid, um, yeah. uh, lab that I've done with them. Um, and I, yeah, found- so just, to, just to interrupt you to yeah. remind that first, Tell the listeners. So through Ohio State, Ohio State, there's the Arabidopsis Biological Resource Center, mm-hmm. and they will send you free seeds of yes. lots of different kids, lots of different genotypes. Uh, it's really a, a a great resource. Yeah, and so they're they're. Um, it took me a few years to figure out how to get gibberellic acid because gibberellic acid often comes in a paste, and it's not really water soluble. Um, and so I was able to buy, I bought like a ton of different powdered gibberellic acids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I ended up spending, I ended up dropping more than a hundred dollars to get it from Sigma. Um, I had to yep. buy the expensive gibberellic acid, but it worked. Um, and, and then, then do you mix it with alcohol. I think I mixed it with a little bit of alcohol. Um, and then I diluted that in water. Um, okay. I'll have to look up how I actually did that because <laughs> it's been a couple of years. Um, but I got to, the number is like 50 millimolars, like what comes to mind, uh, like the, the net concentration that you wanted for that gibberellic acid. So I think I, I and again, this is all through using uh, that resource at Ohio State um, with the Arabidops, Arabidopsis outreach. I emailed back and forth with them to find the concentrate. Like they helped me like troubleshoot, very similar to what I said about New England Biolabs. Um you got to ask questions. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, sometimes people are offered to do things and then you just got to ask. And the worst thing that's going to happen is you'll get no response. But usually 
they're outreach for a reason. They want to help you do this. And they helped me figure out how to, you know, get Arabidopsis. They sent the seeds. Um, they had to figure out how to get the gibberellic acid, how to make the solutions. And they sort of troubleshoot through there. And so then I set up the experiments with the gibberellic acids versus water. And they had a couple of different mutant strains that they sent out that had um, mutant forms of Arabidopsis. So um, that's like, I like to do a lab like that as an intro to a model organism. And then I let my students design their own. Um, last year, we didn't end up doing that lab because of time. Um, I have a couple of other larger projects that ate up most of my <laughs> February and March. And usually that's a late March lab. And um I wanted to do a, a quick transpiration lab instead. Um, and Arabidopsis are not good models for transpiration. Uh, so we ended up shifting that up. But um, yeah, I the vernalization seems to be a really important thing if you're just testing um, germination. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I did have luck um, germinating a few. But I will I will try that method out. I like the the cold shock I, I did use, uh, and I just had some some mixed results. So I'm definitely interested in doing more Arabidopsis, especially with this Ohio State uh, seed seed stocks for free because I, I like Wisconsin fast plants too. But uh, these are cheaper and they have a little more genetic diversity, like. One, yeah. one that I'm interested in is they have like drought resistance and uh, drought tolerance. So looking at like environmental impacts versus yeah. other things. Yeah, for me, I think the um, using Arabidopsis is better in an AP class, whereas I think fast plants are a little bit better in, say, an honors bio or intro bio class. Um, that's sort of how I'm differentiating them, because with those advanced students, just sort of like what you're saying with abstracts and and research and like connecting it to to real world lab science. Like, yeah, there's not a lot of like I don't I don't know that I could find a lab that uses fast plants fast, as the model. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can absolutely find Arabidopsis. Um, you know, we we sent kids to the Broad Institute last year to visit their Arabidopsis facility. Um, and we sent kids, uh, I, we've had a variety of different uh, labs at Harvard. And um, I sent them to, to a great lab at UMass Boston a couple of years ago and at UMass Worcester. And there's like, you know, dozens around here where awesome. people are using them uh, there where we can connect to the actual research. So, um, yeah, I, space I, station. Yeah, <laughs> there's absolutely, and they—that's the thing. They can read the journal articles. They can read even the common, uh, you know, the the science today kind of articles about the space station and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, good. All right. So um, did I, did we step completely on your pick of the week, or do you want to you want to pick something uh, else? Well, I think we have plenty of resources. All right. Uh, go ahead. The one thing that I will do this year for kind of I guess my pick or a recommendation for teachers is doing a journal search uh, through whatever program you, you'll use to look at a database of journals and, and doing a search for, let's say you're teaching diffusion, uh, misconceptions and diffusion. So I have found that right before I start teaching a unit, focusing on trying to find uh, journals that are talking about student misconceptions with that topic prior to teaching it. And I, I find all kinds of interesting things that I never knew about uh, how students are uh, having misconceptions. And I've actually found 
some of my own misconceptions uh, from those articles also. So it's a great, you know, kind of professional development, uh, just going through a journal article of misconceptions of the units that you're teaching. So what kind of journals are you suggesting for searching through? Uh, what kind of databases might you want to use? Let's see. Uh, like the American biology teacher is a, a good one. And then there's one on, uh, you know, through Google Scholar. Okay. If you just go to Google Scholar or, uh, you know, if you're affiliated with a university at all, uh, using theirs is even better. Uh, but just finding any articles, even at just a, a Google Scholar search, though, I would recommend. Yeah, you've been able to get a lot of different stuff. That was a that was a work that I, I pushed on um, early in my career was looking at misconceptions. And I know I, we did a lot of work with uh, evolution misconceptions early in my career. Yeah. Um, which is which is interesting because we spend a lot of time on it, and I teach in an area where evolution is just not particularly controversial, um, uh -huh. and the evolution instruction is generally pretty good uh, where I teach. Um, but I I love your idea of looking at other things because I think um, I think I, we've looked at the low hanging fruit, but maybe we want to look at some of the other things that we know that kids struggle with. Yeah, like uh, diffusion is yeah. is a great one where they. I think a lot of people have the same kind of thing where they think the molecules are choosing to go from an area of high concentration to low, mm -hmm. uh, like they're, they have some kind of mind and they're <laughs> saying, oh, there's nobody over here. Let's go over here, guys, uh, versus just the power of randomness. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll uh, definitely have to, I'll put maybe a couple example searches in too um, for some stuff that we come up with. Yeah, I can put a couple of good ones. So. Cool. All right. So my pick, as we alluded to earlier, is an article I found in the Washington Post uh, with uh, every solar eclipse that's happening in your lifetime. And so it's a Washington Post article. And if you click on it, um, it will bring up a thing where you type in the year that you were born and it will tell you how many more eclipses will happen in there. And also in this article, it's really cool. If you scroll down, it show you all of the eclipses that will go through the continental U.S. in the next hundred years. Um and uh, this is pretty cool. And this is where we there's a big conversation that was happening yesterday on Twitter amongst some of us about getting ready for 2024, um, where on in 2024, my oldest son on his 21st birthday is going to be a uh, the next total solar eclipse that comes through. Uh, and it's going to come through. It's going to be like in your backyard. Uh, and is it to, yeah, I know it's coming like down the street. So yeah. is it going to be a total? Totality? Yeah, zone of totality. That's awesome. And it's going to run right through Dallas. Um, it's going to run up through northern Ohio. Uh, and then it's going to miss me. It's going to move north. It's going to be upstate New York and through northern Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine. So um, it's going to be a Monday. It's in April. Uh, <laughs> and so, but I will be, <laughs> I will be like a four hour drive from totality. So um, yeah, it'll be, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where I am and on that date, you know, to see whether or not I'm in 2024, am I the kind of person that just like bails on my students and school to drive oh. uh, up to, to get to the zone of totality? Or it was like, do <laughs> I get, or do I, do I stick around and say, eh, all right, I guess we'll be here. Um, yeah. Well, well, our, ours is close enough. I'll have to organize a field trip of some sort. Yeah. Uh, you guys are really close to it. Yeah. The next one. I mean, how special is it that we can have these kind of 
the the moon blocks out our sun and turns our daylight and you can see stars i mean what a what a crazy world we live in yeah and and for me it was it was it was neat um we we had the thing that i was probably most worried about which is we got the beginning of the eclipse where i was and we're nowhere near totality uh up in the northeast where i am uh but we we you know we got sort of a, a half eclipse kind of thing but about half hour 40 minutes into it clouds rolled in and we had pretty yeah. pretty heavy cloud cover for the majority of the eclipse so i got a couple of glimpses in the middle at the high point but um but it was still very cool um to see to see where we were but i would have been a little bit better if it was a little clearer of a day <laughs> yeah right right at the time where it was passing so we had i don't know what percent maybe 80 percent is at maximum for us but my two daughters were out and it was cloudy. We had, we had like a little box viewer with a pinhole, which yeah. that was, that was pretty cool. My neighbor brought over a welding mask and <laughs> uh, was using that, which was, and I have a telescope with a <clears throat> solar filter on it. And so we were looking through that, but it was really hard with the clouds because the sun would keep on disappearing. And then I'd have <laughs> to find the telescope again and my tripod's a piece of crap. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, we were, we had we had some big box pinhole uh, camera you know type uh, versions and and it was exactly that same thing with the clouds is you'd have it all lined up and then the clouds would roll through for like 15 minutes and then you'd have to like figure out how to readjust the box as the light was breaking through to try to get it in there and um, but it was still a fun it was a fun day and uh, it definitely was one of those you know unifying moments like you you could go and see that there were people all over the country doing this all over the place and. Um, it's nice when you got a, a unifying, fun, science-based uh, event. Uh, was was really a it was really it was an exciting day. Um, I am a little jealous of those people who were both in school with students and ha were closer to totality than I was uh, because oh, yeah. I think that would be a uh, that would have been a, a one heck of a day to have been uh, you know to have experienced. But um, I, it was fun to be with my boys uh, yesterday. Uh, and that, that's a pretty, that was pretty special. And I think if we were closer to totality and, or had less clouds, it would have been more exciting, but, um, it was still fun. But yeah, yeah it was a good day for science for sure. Yeah. So. Uh, and I was, I was impressed with my daughters. I have a 13 year old and a 10 year old, which are just about your kid's yep. age. Right? 10, 10 and 14 are mine. Yeah. So, uh, they were, they were really interested in it. So I was glad that they weren't like, Oh, this is all we're looking at, <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah, no, my kids were excited about it too. So that that was a lot of fun. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much, John, for joining me. Uh, this was uh, another, as I said, I predicted it would run long uh, kind of episode uh, <laughs> where we we got on and we started talking. No, it's great. It was funny. <laughs> like we got on and we started talking before I recorded and I was like, oh yeah, we're just going to go along because there's no way. Uh, it's, sometimes you get together and uh, start talking, you can immediately tell, but I love it. Um, and you know, the dozens of people who listen seem to put up with it. So, um, awesome. <laughs> so you're doing good work. So I appreciate it for my bike rides and runs and working on the cars. So. Oh, excellent. All right. So <laughs> let me give my credits, uh, show notes, um, or will be posted at life of the school. Uh, you can can download this and every episode on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or really any else, any place else podcasts are found. You can follow me at um, Mr. Matthew Tweets um, or at Life of the School, both on Twitter. Uh, you can follow uh, John, and I think you're just at John Darko, right? Yeah. 
And so I'll put that also in the show notes, but uh, you're, you're really easy. You got your, you got your name. Um, <laughs> so there's that. So this is going to be our uh, September 1st episode. Uh, I will be starting school the next day with students. Most everyone else will have been in for a few weeks, but I hope everyone has a good start to the school year and I'll uh, talk to you soon. Take care.